Welcome to episode three, Cranking Out Notes, Ethically and Efficiently, by Elizabeth E. Riez, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, from Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. I will be your trainer for today's session. My name is Elizabeth E. Riaz, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist with specializations in utilization review, clinical management, and quality assurance. As a consultant and trainer, I work with clinical teams across the country to improve their quality of care, their documentation practices, and also their utilization review outcomes. I also operate a private practice in Westlake Village, California, where I provide adolescent and young adult therapy, family therapy, and also addictive disorder treatment. I also specialize with LGBT. Our topic today is cranking out notes ethically and efficiently. Progress notes can be one of the most unpleasant activities for clinicians. What do we write? How much do we write? How long should it take? Do we even need to write notes? The truth is that a lot of us didn't really receive that much training in our education programs about progress notes. We received a lot of training about how to be wonderful, excellent, empathic clinicians. But one of the things that often gets missed is how to write a progress note. Plus, there's a whole lot of variation in the field along with different note formats and different perspectives on the subject. My goal today is to give you some information about the really critical elements in your progress notes and also talk about some of the rules, laws, and regulations that relate to your clinical documentation practices. I want to take a moment to tell you the way I see it. In my world, clinical documentation looms large, but that's also my specialization. Most of us didn't go into this field because we enjoy writing notes. We went into this field because we like working with people and we want that hands-on time with our clients and our patients. One of the reasons that I want to take time in today's training to talk about your progress notes is because it has such significant ramifications for you and for your clients. So many things hinge on our progress notes, things like our reputation, our credibility, legal cases, behavioral health insurance claims, really important factors to treatment. And it's important that we get the correct information into our progress notes. And it's also important that it's succinct and easy for us to do. So I want to review some important themes today that really need to make their way into your progress notes and also give you a little bit of insight about ways to pare down that information and make it a little bit simpler and easier for you to capture. Let's start by taking a look at some of the certificate requirements that come out of the California Consortium of Addiction Programs and Professionals, also known as CCAP. This information is straight from the California Certification Board for Alcohol and Drug Counselors Handbook, which was released in 2013. This guide includes a number of core functions, things like screening and assessment, consultation and treatment planning, And for today's purposes, I'm pulling information from Domain 7 relating to documentation. They outline a couple of core tasks here that are expected and required for drug counselors in order to be deemed competent. Task number three states, document treatment and continuing care plans that are consistent with best practices and applicable administrative rules. Task four states, document client's progress in relation to treatment goals and objectives. Task five states, prepare accurate and concise reports and records, including recommendations, referrals, case consultations, legal reports, family sessions, and discharge summaries. Task number six, document all relevant aspects of case management activities to assure continuity of care. And task number seven, document process, progress, and outcome measurements. In this case, this guide is pretty explicit about what needs to be in your notes. It doesn't say how much of that information needs to be in your notes, but it does tell you explicitly 
And the pieces that jump out to me include the following. Documenting treatment goals and objectives, our recommendations, referrals, case consultations, family sessions, and discharge summaries, all aspects of case management in order to assure continuity of care, and treatment process, progress, and outcome measurements. So when you hear these, what I need you to do right now is stop and take a second and think to yourself, do my notes actually accurately reflect these different themes? Have I been documenting when I give a client a referral to see a psychiatrist or a recommendation for group therapy? Have I been keeping track of my family sessions? Am I actively taking note of the client's progress And in terms of process, process is really how we got from point A to point B. So right here, CCAP is telling you, you need to take a moment to talk about your actual sessions and what you do in session. What's the process that occurs and how does that assist the client in going toward change? I also note that they're pretty explicit about outcome measurements. So for example, if you are doing some kind of craving scale, and you ask a client to rate their cravings from one to 10, are you reliably documenting that, that you ask this every single session, and then you're stating client reports craving level of six, client reports craving level of eight in relation to cocaine, whatever that is, those are really subtle outcome measurements, but they are a way for us to track a client's progress. Other outcome measurements are more standardized. Um, Things like uh, the session rating scale by Scott Miller or the Beck depression or anxiety inventory. These are different things that are used in different programs and by different professionals in order to assess a client's improvement or their treatment gains or losses in order for us to assess our performance as a program or as a professional. Now that we've taken a look at some of the regulations that pertain to drug counselors and dual diagnosis treatment programs, I want to take a look at the regulations that impact therapists, social workers, and psychologists. So the Board of Behavioral Sciences states about marriage and family therapists and social workers. California law expresses the general requirement that a therapist maintain a treatment record that would be typical of other reasonable and prudent therapists. So one of the ways that I read this quote is an expectation basically that we would do what somebody else would do in our situation. The way that I imagine this is that we have a room of a hundred different clinicians that are working with the same population, same kind of client and same background as us. Would they make the same decision in a certain situation that you did? Doesn't necessarily have to be all of them, but would the majority of them say, yeah, you know, when I get the details, I can understand and I can, relate with that, I would probably have done the same thing. That's basically, in my mind, what a reasonable and prudent therapist is. One thing I also want to note when we're looking at clinical documentation, there are different therapists in all different kinds of environments in California. So we have some that are in private practice and that are exclusively outpatient. We have some that are in residential and detox programs through insurance companies and private pay. And we also have some that work with individuals through programs like the counties and Medi-Cal. County mental health has really specific requirements depending on the county and very thorough assessment procedures. It's possible that in that imaginary room of 100 clinicians, that you're going to have a good handful of those folks who do really diligent documentation practices because of their funding source. So keep that in mind. It may not be stacked up against just people who are in private practice or just people who accept insurance. It would be therapists coming from all different walks of life and your documentation might be compared against theirs. So taking another look into the business and professions code, section 1492, uh, this states, the board may suspend or revoke the license or registration of a licensee or registrant if he or she has been guilty of unprofessional conduct. Unprofessional conduct includes but is not limited to the following. Section V, failure to keep records consistent with sound clinical judgment, the standards of the profession, and the nature of the services being rendered. 
So right there, they're saying basically, if we don't exercise sound clinical judgment and keep records that are consistent with the standards of the profession, we could lose our licenses or registration. And I also want to take a quick quote from an article that was featured in the Therapist magazine in the September and October 2010 issue by Douglas Lee, who's a former camp staff attorney. This article was also reviewed in November 2017 by Alan Montgomery. Quote unquote, the standard of care or standard of practice for general practitioners is defined as that level of skill, knowledge, and care in diagnosis and treatment ordinarily possessed and exercised by other reasonably careful and prudent therapists in the same or similar circumstances at the time in question. So once again, there's that idea of a, ther- of a therapist being prudent. How are we prudent in our clinical documentation practices? Is it prudent for us to document it that our client reports that they might be having some pretty severe side effects relating to their medication? And it's probably prudent to document that we then referred them to their psychiatrist or even got the psychiatrist on the phone during that session. Those are all things we would want in our notes to show that we were reasonably careful and prudent. Another article coming out of the Therapist magazine in May and June of 2016, written by David Jensen, also a staff staff attorney at Camp. If the BBS is investigating an allegation of incompetence, it will be as interested in initial evaluations, treatment plans, and progress notes as any government program or insurance company would be about such matters. The Board of Behavioral Sciences likely will not give a hoot about whether you used green ink instead of blue or black ink. It will be concerned about the job you did or did not do as evidenced by your treatment records. I think David's article article and quote here is pretty clear. Basically, he's saying it doesn't matter whether you accept insurance. It doesn't matter if it's a government-based program or if you're private pay you need to have sound evaluations, treatment plans, and progress notes. And if there is an allegation of incompetence, they're going to use your records to explore that. The axiom that you learned in graduate school is still very much alive. If it wasn't written down, it didn't occur. And he notes, so whether one contracts with government programs or insurance companies or whether one has only direct pay patients, the job is always the same. Assess, evaluate, and manage the case. And that is the stuff that should be in everyone's records. So there it is coming from straight from Dave Jensen, camp staff attorney. Looking for psychologists at the Board of Psychologists, one of their regulations says, psychologists create and to the extent the records are under their control, maintain, disseminate, store, retain, and dispose of data relating to their professional and scientific work in order to, one, facilitate provision of services later by them or by other professionals, two, allow for replication of research design and analyses, three, meet institutional requirements, four, ensure accuracy of billing and payments, and five, ensure compliance with law. So the pieces here that really jump out to me, they're saying you need to maintain appropriate records. You need to do this in order to, quote, facilitate provision of services later by them or by other professionals. Basically, what they're saying is your records need to keep accurate statement of what you did in session so that somebody else can come in behind you and know what was done. Or perhaps you need to go back and be able to reference them. I think all of these laws, whether we're looking at CCAP, Board of Behavioral Sciences, or Board of Psychology, I think they're all really relevant to all of us as clinicians. We all have different clinical lanes. So drug counselors obviously are going to be more concerned with AOD and the problems that relate to that. Mental health professionals clearly are going to be looking at a different subset of symptoms than drug counselors. However, all of us are behavioral health professionals working in an environment that are expected to have adequate and sound treatment records by each of our certifying and licensing bodies. 
Another law that I want to take a look at in California comes from Section 123130 of the California Health and Safety Code. This is a law that allows mental health professionals to provide a summary of treatment records rather than the complete record. The summary must contain the following information, if applicable, and this is what's outlined in the law. Chief complaints, including pertinent history, findings from other consultations and referrals to other healthcare providers, diagnosis, treatment plan, progress of the treatment, prognosis, including significant continuing problems or conditions, pertinent reports of diagnostic tests, and discharge summaries. The reason that I bring up this particular law is it covers pretty clearly what would need to be in a summary if we were to release that to a third party, be it an attorney um, or a family member. If that information is in a summary, therefore, it would have to be in our clinical record. So let me read those again. Our clinical record, according to this law, therefore must contain chief complaint, including pertinent history, So this would be the diagnosis, your symptoms, your evaluations and assessments, findings from consultations and referrals to other healthcare providers. So if you are referring them out for a physical or for psychiatry or for group therapy or for couples therapy or whatever it might be, you need to document that in your record. And also if the client say gives you their psych testing report that was a finding from another consultation or from another professional that would need to be in your clinical record. The diagnosis, make sure you're really clear about updating this. We are expected to diagnose our clients even in private practice environments. Your treatment plan, pretty explicit there. It simply says treatment plan. Therefore, we have to have a treatment plan in order for us to be satisfying this law. Progress of the treatment. We need to be saying how the client is doing, if our treatment is effective, if we've recommended other modalities, things like that. Prognosis, including significant continuing problems or conditions. So do we think that they have treatment-resistant depression and this has been part of their life for such a long time that we're not hoping, well, we are maybe hoping to achieve full recovery, but we are at least hoping to resume them or to help them resume a more standard level of functioning. What's the prognosis for such severe depression? What's a prognosis for a really severe um, diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder? That needs to be indicated in our records. Any pertinent reports of diagnostic tests? So if you work alongside different psychologists, or if there were neurological tests, or if you're doing different even outcome measures, like I previously mentioned, like the Beck depression inventory or the Beck anxiety inventory, that would be part of your summary. And therefore that needs to be documented in your clinical chart. And lastly, a discharge summary. This part's really important because I think a lot of therapists, particularly in private practice, probably don't keep discharge summaries. It is standard of care for us to be writing down all of these factors that contributed to the client's discharge. So realistically, we would be talking about their initial diagnosis. We'd be talking about their progress. We'd be talking about prognosis. So when we, when we step back and we look at this law, again, which is section 123130 of California Health and Safety Code, in order for us to be providing a summary that would reasonably be expected to have this information, our clinical chart has to have this information to back up that summary. So we've covered some of the laws and regulations that pertain to clinical documentation. Now let's actually talk about the different elements that need to be in your notes. So first and foremost, date, time, and service type. This one's pretty simple and pretty obvious, but there are some points that I want to take note of. Um, The date of service If the client was scheduled to come in on a certain time, for those of you who use electronic medical records, let's say that they were scheduled to come in on Tuesday at 4 p.m., but they actually presented instead on Tuesday at 4.30 p.m., your clinical chart should reflect the time that the actual session occurred. You might take note of the fact that the client arrived half hour late, but do make sure that there's a really concrete record of when the client was with you, not just when the session itself was scheduled. We should also be including the procedure code or description of service. 
So was that individual therapy? Was that family therapy? And I also want to take note of who was present, the clients and the staff members. Sometimes I see progress notes that will say that it was a family therapy session, but it doesn't state who was there. It's up to you and your personal professional judgment on whether or not you write biological mother or the client's mother's name was Karen. That's entirely up to you, but your notes should identify who was there in the session. And I also want to note any interruptions that happened during the session. We've probably all had those situations where a client gets upset and leaves the room. If that's the case, it should be documented in your chart that from 4.50 to 4.55, the client had stepped outside and another staff member was helping calm that person down, let's say. Those are the kind of things that we need to see in a clinical record for us to understand the story of what occurred during that particular service. I also want to note, if you're performing teletherapy, so any kind of therapy or counseling over the phone, it's best practice to document the reported location of the client. Of course, we can't verify that the client is actually at school in San Diego or in their hotel in San Francisco. But remember in California, we're only licensed to practice in California. There are some exceptions to this and you get into kind of a gray area about a client going on a vacation for a limited amount of time. But again, if you are performing teletherapy, my best advice is to make sure you document where the client says they are during that particular session. Your note should also have a signature of the person that provided the service, including their discipline or title. And in my view, if something happened, particularly if you're in a treatment team-based environment, it's better for you to double document than under document. So sometimes there are situations where there are two therapists that happen to be involved in one service. Make sure that if the other therapist or counselor says they're documenting that service, make sure that they do. Um, it's really important that those services are appropriately documented and that your contribution to those services are documented because again, our medical records are effectively legal documents. So if you were in that session, what happened during that's important. And I'd rather see multiple notes in a chart associated with one treatment episode, especially when that chart says clinician A and clinician B were present to assist client A. It's okay if there's a note from clinician A and a clinician B, as long as you're not double billing for that particular service. I'd rather have you double document then under document and assume that the other person involved in the situation or session is going to document that session or situation and they don't. Now that we've documented the nitty gritty of the session, the date and the time and who was present, the next most important factor that needs to be in your clinical documentation pertains to any safety or risk factors. I want you to document both the client's presentation and your clinical response to it. One thing I often see in these high risk or crisis situations is a really clear documentation by the clinician about what happened in the session, what the client said, what the symptoms were, why the therapist or counselor thought that the person might be high risk or that the situation was high risk. But one of the things that I often see that's missing is a clinician's clinical response to that situation. For example, I had a session once where an adolescent client that I'd been seeing for a while came into session and after kind of feeling out what was going on, he ultimately divulged during the session that he was intending to go and score some drugs after the session and lace it with some alcohol and overdose. So those were his reported symptoms. Those were some, some of his statements, but there was also what I did to clinically manage that situation. I phoned his parents. I also called the pet team and asked them to come out to assess him. I stayed with the client and I stabilized him until his parents and the emergency responders could arrive. And then I gave information to the paramedics when they got there. I stayed with him during the assessment. I talked with his parents about what was happening and 
provided some information to the paramedics when they were taking him to the hospital. And I also talked with the parents about what to expect. In the days that followed, I followed up with the family to reach out to them to get a status update and also provide some support and feedback to them as they navigated this process with a psychiatric hospitalization. Those were all things that I did to respond to the situation. Those are all the things that need to be in my clinical documentation for these high-risk situations. So again, it wasn't just the symptoms or the situation that I'm reporting. I have to report in my notes what I did to clinically manage that situation because those high-risk issues may ultimately be scrutinized. There could come a day where there's an investigation about the decisions that I made and my clinical record needs to be credible and reflective of why I did what I did, not just what the client said or did. Once you've documented any of those safety and risk factors, if there are any for that particular session, the next thing you want to make sure to document are the client's symptoms. And that includes both what you observe in session, so tearfulness, physical, physical agitation, and their reported symptoms. So let's say that they're suffering from insomnia or they have a lack of appetite or they feel a lack of energy. Those are the kind of things that you want to report in the client's symptoms as well as a mental status exam. So if the client is fully stable and oriented, you more than likely want to document that in your chart. If they're not, obviously also you would document that. And again, you would document anything you did related to their lack of stability. When you're looking at these symptoms, it's important to remember that there's our interpretation of the symptoms and then there's the actual symptom itself. So for example, if someone is tearful, we might make the leap that that person is sad. That, that assertion that that individual is sad is actually an interpretation, unless they tell us explicitly, I'm sad. Tearfulness could be related to sadness, but it could also be related to happiness. So be careful when you're documenting symptoms to really zero in on the behavior or the experience that the client is reporting. You, that doesn't mean you can't say that the client appears sad, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are sad. So be careful in your language about whether or not something is concrete. So again, they appeared excited versus they are excited. I probably would only say that they are excited if the person explicitly said, I am excited. Otherwise, I would use all these cues to determine this person appears excited. The next piece of information that I want to see in notes pertains to interventions. What treatment interventions did you use and what was the clinical reasoning behind them? One thing I often see in progress notes is scripting. Basically that the client says one thing, the therapist says something back, the client says another thing, the therapist responds. While that's a decent script, it doesn't tell me the underlying motive or the clinical reasoning behind what the clinician was attempting to do by making that statement. For example, let's say that you encourage your client to identify the pros and cons of switching majors in college. Why did you do this? Well, depending on your methodology or your clinical perspective for a lot of different reasons. Let's say you did it in order to assist the client in developing her problem solving skills in relation to complex decisions. Let's say you did it in order to encourage a client to practice consequential reasoning instead of engaging in black and white thinking. Let's say you did it in order to explore the positive and negative aspects of her decision making process to build insight. So in other words, the therapist encouraged the client to identify the pros and cons of switching majors in college in order to build the client's problem-solving abilities. So this particular note is important because it explains not only what we did, what our actual intervention was, but our clinical reasoning behind it. Again, our progress notes need to tell the story of the five W's, who, what, where, why, and when, and that why, that's basically our in order to. When you stop and think about it, there are so many interventions that counselors and therapists do all the time, constantly. 
And there's probably a clinical reasoning behind almost every single one. So for example, when I walk down the hallway to my waiting room and I open the door and greet my client, whether or not I allow that person to walk in front of me down the hallway or whether I lead them down the hallway to my office, that's actually a clinical intervention. So let's say that I let the person walk in front of me. I did that in order to what? Allow the client to feel a sense of respect coming from me as a therapist. I did it in order to perhaps balance the uh, power differential that can occur in therapy. There are lots of reasons why I might have done that. So it's not just what I did, but it's a clinical reasoning and justification behind it that's very, very important. I also want to note that in terms of your interventions, this might also be things that you need to do outside of the session. So this could say therapist will confirm with client psychiatrist that there's been a change in her medication. These are things that you're actually intervening. It requires some action on your part in order to do. One thing I often hear from insurance companies, quick note, when they're looking at progress notes, those scripts that lack interventions from the therapist, what I've heard from different insurance companies about this is that it doesn't really give indication for what the therapist is doing and why. It just basically tells the wording that the therapist might have used, and again, not the clinical reasoning. The therapist treatment needs to be clearly indicated in that chart, and especially for things like insurance companies, that's why they're paying you the big bucks. Um, So let's say when you go to a coffee shop and the barista says to you, how are you doing? The reason the barista is asking, how are you doing? is very different than what we're asking as a therapist when we say, how are you doing? We're performing a mental brief mental status exam. Uh, we are assessing for mood. Um, we're assessing for lots of things by this simple question. So it's not just the act of what we did. It's also the clinical reasoning behind it that's really important and needs to make its way into your progress notes. The next important piece relates to functional impairment. Functional impairment basically means taking a step further than the symptoms and considering how they're actually affecting that person in the real world. So this is an analysis of how it's affecting their safety, their health, their academic or occupational functioning, perhaps how it's affecting their family or significant others or their friendships, their community at large. These elements are more, in some ways, more important than the symptoms themselves because we could have a very similar set of symptoms, but the impact on the client related to those symptoms could be very, very different. So here's an example of this that I often give and bear with me. So let's talk about the term, colloquial term, functioning alcoholic. So imagine a person that has a bottle or two of wine per night, they have pretty high tolerance, but let's say that they really haven't had that much functional impairment related to that. They haven't ever had a DUI. They haven't ever had any other kind of legal consequences associated with their alcohol use. They're financially secure. They haven't had any significant impairments in their significant relationships related to their substance use. They haven't had trouble getting to work. They still get their kids to school in the morning. All of these things, again, here's your symptom that seems pretty severe, but the functional impairment in practice may not be that big. Um, There could be potential health impairment, but for the sake of this example, now I want to imagine if I had a bottle or two of wine in a night, I am a very petite female. If I had a bottle or two of wine per night or in one night, I would be a puddle. There is no way that I would make it to take my son to daycare in the morning. There's no way that I would make it to work the next day. And chances are it would have a really significant impact on my social and occupational functioning. Do you see how the same set of symptoms has very different ramifications for different clients? That's what I mean when I say we need to consider the functional impairment. It's not just a symptom, but how it's practically affecting that person in the real world. The next piece that's important to document relates to the client's response. What did the client do in session in response to your treatment interventions? Did they say that they hated that activity that you did with a whiteboard? 
Or did they say, gosh, I've never thought about it that way. I'm glad that we were able to talk it through. It's important to document your client's response in session. Again, imagine that your treatment records are going to inform the treatment of someone else who's coming in behind you. It's important for that person not only to know what you did, but whether or not the client was receptive to it. Did it work? This is also an opportunity for you to evaluate the client's progress. Do they appear to be responding positively to the therapeutic encounter? Are they open to your relapse prevention interventions? Make sure to document somewhere the client's response. The next piece, in addition to the response of the client, is our clinical interpretation. This is where we have the opportunity to put on our clinician hat and pull it solidly onto our heads, rub our chins for a moment and say, hmm, what do I think is going on here? Do we think that the client's early childhood trauma is related to their current difficulty um, establishing and maintaining intimate relationships? Do we believe that their substance use disorder appears worse when the client's in times of extreme stress? Those are the kind of pieces that we're trained to interpret. Why do we think things are going on? That interpretation in some way needs to make it into our chart. This is really important for the recommendation that we might be making for future treatment or why we believe this person needs to be in treatment right now. Again, this is part of our clinical decision-making process. Once we've documented the here and now parts of treatment and our clinical interpretation or assessment, we also need to document our future plans. So what are our recommendations? Do we think this individual should have therapy a little more frequently right now because they're in a time of particularly high stress? Do we think that maybe they should increase the frequency of their psychiatry visits or perhaps slow them down because their symptoms are improving? So we need to document here what referrals we're making and any reasons for those referrals. And depending on the treatment context, we also might state the date of the next therapy session or couple session and who might be there or a family session. If the client's taking a vacation, for example, or a break from therapy, it's important for us to document that here. And also, you may even document what treatment interventions you want to use the next time, or perhaps you want to remind yourself to follow up on that homework assignment. One thing that I sometimes see is that a therapist will assign a homework assignment and it's documented, but then there's a little follow-up later on. So if the plan for the next session is to do a follow-up about whatever that intervention was that you assigned to them between your last session and this session, make sure to indicate in the next session how you're following up on it. To recap, we've talked about the following sections and how they're important to each and every note. The date, time, and service type, safety and risk factors, symptoms and presentation, your clinical interventions, functional impairment, the client's response, and the clinical interpretation, including the client's progress. There are some other important points that I want to make note of in today's training. Let's talk about collateral contact. Collateral contact is basically any contact that we have with anybody else pertaining to the client's treatment outside of session. So this includes clinical consultations, test results from other professionals, collaboration with other professionals, be it coaches or teachers, doctors, psychiatrists, life coaches, feedback from family members or caregivers, including phone calls and emails. So all of these elements are really important to providing collaborative, holistic care, and they really are best practice. It is best practice to be in touch with other providers and relevant persons in our clients' lives when it's appropriate and recommended. So for example, I think it's really important to have regular contact with psychiatrists. And when I do that, I make note in my chart that I spoke with a psychiatrist on a certain day at a certain time, and I also quickly document what we talked about. Did the, th did the psychiatrist let me know that he or she had increased a client's dose of Lexapro? If they did, then that's the kind of information that I want to quickly document in the chart to show not only that I did my due diligence in reaching out to that psychiatrist, but also that I'm informed about what's going on with the client's care outside of my therapy or counseling office. For those of you who accept managed care, I also want to make a quick note here about insurance requirements for the higher levels of care. 
Most level of care guidelines, those are the guidelines that insurance companies release that basically define medical necessity in their terms and tell you what's required in order for a program to be considered partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient. Most of those insurance guidelines stipulate somewhere that there's some kind of collateral contact. They do this because it's best practice. So if a client goes into residential care, it's absolutely best practice for those care providers to reach out to the outpatient therapist, to have a conversation with the outpatient psychiatrist, perhaps to reach out to the school counselor and learn about the expulsion. It's not enough to just do those things. It's awesome to do those things and you definitely should, but it's also really important to document them again, because our clinical charts are reflective of what we did and why we did it. And one of the things that's expected of us is to provide that holistic and collaborative care and our charts need to be reflective of that. I want to make a quick note here about consistency in your clinical documentation practices particularly for those of us who work in insurance-based environments, where we also might have clients that are coming in from different funding sources. Charts for insurance clients and for private pay clients must cover the same information with comparable detail. The same is true for all funding sources, be that Medi-Cal or Medicare. Those charts need to be as good as an insurance client's chart. Think about how an auditor might interpret it if your cash paying clients have poor quality charts and your insurance clients. If there were a large scale audit in the care that you were providing and they were comparing one chart to another, let's say again that it was a cash pay chart to an insurance chart. And because insurance requires you have a firm treatment plan and there's none in your cash paying clients chart, it would actually appear that your cash paying client was, was receiving lesser care than your insurance based client. Make sure that there's consistency between your clients and how you're documenting regardless of the funding source. Now we get to the really important and interesting stuff. How much to write in your progress notes. There really isn't a standard here, but I want to tell you about what I consider a good rule of thumb. For every 10 or 15 minutes of session, your notes should document at least one intervention and client response. So let's say then that you have a 45 minute session, you ought to have at least three defined interventions and at least three defined client responses. These ought to be the most important interventions and responses. If there are more than three relevant interventions and responses, then of course, write them. But sometimes we have those sessions where not a whole lot happened. It's still important for us to document our interventions and our client's response. So let's say that your client is particularly sullen and isn't really engaging in therapy. Therapist attempted to solicit feedback from client about how his day in school went. That's your intervention. Response, client appeared sullen and appeared to not want to participate in therapy today. So that's kind of an assessment, but it's also an assessment of the client's response. So again, a good rule of thumb is at least one intervention and one response for every 10 or 15 minutes of session. Most of us do 45 or 50 minute sessions. If I'm looking at your progress notes, I'd like to see at least three of your most significant interventions, as well as at least three sentences about your client's response. And in terms of the way that you actually write, I've never seen any guideline that states that therapists or counselors must write in complete sentences. So if, if for you, it's, it's simpler and better to write in fragments, as long as those fragments make sense, it's permissible as long as it's also acceptable to your agency or your supervisor if you're in that kind of environment. However you write, it just has to be legible and it has to be something that another party could understand what was going on in session by reading that note. Let's talk about time. Turnaround time for your clinical documentation as well as how long it should take you to document. For those of you that are in managed care or agency type environments, in order to be in compliance with managed care guidelines, accreditation agencies, and state licenses, progress notes must be completed and signed within 24 hours of the service. 
Best practice, however, really and truly involves same-day documentation, and here's why. If a significant incident occurs after you have seen a client and you haven't documented it, guess who might be blamed or investigated? There have absolutely been investigations that occur after significant client incidents, like overdoses or homicides, suicides, uh, self-harm. When those things are investigated, our clinical charts are going to be evaluated. And imagine us inputting a note after a significant incident occurs. It doesn't look good on an audit, and it also kind of looks suspicious. So it's really important that we document what we're doing and why we're doing it and how the client presented right after it happens, just in case something should happen down the line. This is basically our best way to cover our tails. So in terms of the time that it should take you to write your progress notes, once you get really good at writing progress notes and you find a format that you like and you kind of get in the groove, it should really take you no longer than five or 10 minutes to write a really decent progress note. Some of you may be writing way more than you need to and need to pare it down to capture those really critical elements of medical necessity. On the flip side, some of you might be writing very, very little and need to bump it up in order to capture that three interventions per 45 or 50 minute session and those three responses per 45 or 50 minute session. Some of you are gonna go different ways on this, but trust me here, once you get past a potentially steep learning curve of how to integrate these elements from these trainings, it really should only take you five or 10 minutes in order to write an effective progress note. And in a perfect world, your progress note also encourages your clinical reflective process. So basically it lets us slow down and think about what actually happened in session and what do I think about it? Where do I go from here clinically? Our next section relates to copying and pasting. I wanna start this by giving some examples of how copying and pasting can damage your credibility and even potentially be problematic from a billing standpoint. There have been many examples over the years, both on a national basis and in California, that relate to insurance fraud and third-party billing fraud. A number of these examples involve clinicians copying and pasting their notes from one session into the next. And basically the theory is there that they're hoping nobody's going to audit it and no one's going to notice that the client had exactly the same symptoms and the clinician had the exactly, exactly the same response for any number of sessions. On an audit, copy and pasted content is a major, major red flag. The accreditation agencies like the Joint Commission and CARF specifically require that charts are individualized. And one of the reasons they do this is because they're trying to crack down on copying and pasting. So it's pretty unlikely that a client is going to say the exact same quote in four subsequent sessions. One of the things I do want to note about copying and pasting, it's not that it's inherently bad, but if you are going to copy and paste, I need you to hear me say this, you need to do it carefully only when it's actually appropriate and reflective of what happened in the session and when it's specifically applicable to that client, your care, and that situation. So for example, let's pretend that you are a strict dialectical behavioral therapy therapist. So you probably often engage clients in check the facts activities, or you may engage them in a dear man exercise. Let's say that you're a diehard relapse prevention counselor and you probably spend a lot of time helping clients identify some triggers and then assisting them in coming up with safe responses to those triggering situations. If you spend a lot of your time doing a lot of the same interventions, then it's not inherently bad for you to copy and paste that from another session. However, I state again, it's not always bad, but if you're going to copy and paste, you need to do it carefully only when it's appropriate, and only when it's specifically applicable. Like I said, during an audit, they will zero in on any copied and pasted content, 
And if you're going to do this, you need to do so judiciously and very, very carefully. In general, I advise against it. But again, if you are a treatment provider who uses a frequent intervention, that may be one of those cases where it's permissible. Be very careful if you're going to do this. The next thing I want to cover is probably going to make any number of you cringe, and that's about concurrent documentation. Concurrent documentation is a practice of completing our progress notes, or at least part of them, while we're in session with our clients. Many of you might be inherently opposed to this. That doesn't mean that you have to do it. It's okay. I just want to bring this up as an option for some of you, particularly if you're struggling to get your clinical documentation done, either between sessions or at the end of the day. There are many large agencies in California that have moved toward a requirement or a recommendation for concurrent documentation for their clinicians because they recognize that people were falling behind. So this is how you implement concurrent documentation. First and foremost, I recommend talking to your clients about it. And basically you have a normal session and let's say you're doing a 50 minute session. When you hit about minute 45, you let your client know, I'm gonna take a minute to sit down at my computer and talk with you about the things that we did during today's session. I wanna know from you what really stood out and I wanna make sure that I capture a record of what we did today. So in this case, you as a clinician are probably basically talking through the session with your client and documenting that at the same time. So you're typing while you're talking. So you might say, in today's session, we talked about your upcoming graduation and we role played how to interact with some of your family members that are visiting. And you're writing that as, you, as you're saying it with your client. Those are the kind of pieces that you'd be writing during concurrent documentation. You may save any notes about the client's symptoms or your interpretation or even your interventions until after the client leaves. But concurrent documentation is one way to really make your clinical process more efficient. Again, you don't have to do it, and I'm not even really recommending that you do. This is for each person and each clinician to decide for themselves but I do wanna cover it as part of this training so that you know that it's an option that's available to you. You can write notes with clients while you're in session. Another point that I wanna bring up relates to completing note fields. So this particularly applies to assessments, but you also might have standardized note formats that include different questions that uh, might be encouraging you to write in a response. Remember to complete all note fields of your clinical note format. And that may mean that you write did not report or denied in a respective field when it's appropriate. The reason this is important, without this, it's hard to determine whether appropriate information was gathered. So let's say that you asked a client about whether he, she, or they had recently seen a doctor and they said no. If you leave that section empty, it's hard for the reader to know whether or not the client had actually been screened for a recent physician visit. So again, for the reader, it leaves you unsure of whether or not this person asked that question. So if you are completing a standardized note format or a standardized assessment, make sure you're filling in the appropriate note fields, even if you're just writing denies or did not report so that that record becomes really cohesive in terms of what you assessed. The same is true for things like suicidality or past self-harm. If you asked about it, you need to indicate somewhere that you asked about it and that the client potentially denied it if they denied it. Don't just leave it off. Case notes are another option that I think we need to discuss briefly. Case notes are an option for almost every electronic medical record out there. Case notes are basically a quick note that we're writing that doesn't necessarily require a formal progress note, or we're not able to currently write a formal progress note and might go back and do so. Case notes are a good way to cover our tales when we're short on time. They're also a great way to document what I call hallway conversations. Particularly if you work in a team-based environment, it's not uncommon for you to see somebody in the hallway and for them to pull you aside and say, hey, just want to let you know something happened with a client. A case note is a really good way to document that and to state in it 
therapist spoke with client's case manager, case manager reports, blah, blah, blah. Again, in a perfect world, the case manager might have reported that as well and put it in the progress note or somewhere else in the chart. However, it's a great idea for you to at least write in that case note because it becomes part of the client's treatment and some of the clinical consideration. Um, It's also a really good way to document those phone calls and that collateral contact that I talked about. For those of you that don't have electronic medical records, case notes are basically those little notes we write to ourselves where we write the date and the time with whom we spoke and also what happened. It's really important that we do these case notes in addition to our progress notes because so many things happen in our treatment that are outside of standard sessions and case notes Well, those are really where you record that information. Before we wrap up, I want to include a few other important points that relate to your progress notes and clinical documentation. In terms of scope of practice, make sure that you stay in your clinical lane. If you're a drug counselor, you may be discussing some behavioral health-based symptoms with a client, but it may not be appropriate for you to recommend any specific kind of treatment or behavioral health intervention. Or for example, Perhaps a client's asking you about different antidepressants. Unless you're a nurse practitioner or psychiatrist, chances are it's not appropriate for you to advise on a specific kind of antidepressant. It's most appropriate for you to refer that person to a doctor, nurse practitioner, or a specialized practitioner like a psychiatrist. When we're venturing into that territory of needing to refer out, our clinical documentation needs to reflect this. And if something is outside of our clinical lane, then we need to document what we did to help that person get in the right clinical lane when it's outside our scope of competence. One other important point, make sure you're writing a note with each service. So for example, an assessment session needs to produce both the actual assessment as well as a note about that session. Many of us have standardized assessment procedures in a certain form that we fill out during an assessment, but we also need a note that says who was in that session, the date and time, what took place, any significant symptoms, all of those things, they need to be in a separate note. And part of that, not only it's important for the clinical record and kind of a story of what happened with the client's treatment and when, but it's also important for billing because we can't bill just based on the assessment. We need to bill based on the assessment session. Quick note about writing goals. Sometimes we don't know where to write them. Make sure they're integrated somewhere in your clinical documentation. Another note, it's important to use clinical and neutral language when discussing clients and their behaviors. Sometimes we can use language that's inherently loaded there may be a more clinically appropriate way to say something. So for example, the term manipulative, that term has inherent implications. If someone saw a note about themselves saying that they were manipulative, chances are that would sting. Perhaps a better way to say it is therapist engages in maladaptive attempts to meet his, her, or their needs. That's a way of conveying the same information but in a neutral and clinically appropriate tone. And just to recap, with some practice and patience, I really do believe that your progress notes are gonna take five or 10 minutes. I know that we've talked about a lot of material today and it seems a little hard to condense it all, but once you have these factors kind of swirling around your brain and you step back for a moment before you start writing your progress notes, it becomes easier and easier to organize the information and really pull out the most important pieces that need to make it into the clinical record. During this segment, we've covered quite a bit of information. We talked about the different laws and regulations that impact our clinical documentation here in California. We've talked about some of the most critical components that every progress note needs to contain, and also some other important points like the documentation of collateral contact or consistency or things like concurrent documentation. All of these pieces, when we apply them to our clinical documentation, not only help satisfy insurance requirements and different laws and regulations and accrediting bodies, but they really make us more responsible and flexible clinicians. We become really acutely aware of why we're doing what we're doing, and that mindfulness can only serve to make us better in our jobs. 
My goal here is to help you work smarter, not harder. Save time and energy and document only what you need to ethically and by law. I want to help you understand what really needs to be in your progress notes and also offer you some strategies to help you document efficiently. For more on the topic of writing progress notes, check out my e-learning titled Different Ways to Write Fast Ethical Notes. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.